Hi, I'm Larry Reed, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and today I'm going to introduce to you a podcast that I hope you've heard of, but if you haven't, you really should know about it. It's Bob Murphy's podcast. So Bob Murphy, if you're not familiar, is co-host of the Contra Krugman podcast. He's a guest on the Tom Wood Show from time to time. He also has another podcast that he co-hosts with Carlos Lara called the Lara Murphy Report. And Bob is just an all-around fantastic person, economist, and he's really funny. Uh, And if you didn't know a whole lot about Bob, this podcast is a good way to get to know him from just a different angle. And a few months ago, he sat down with Dr. Norman Horn of this podcast and had a conversation about liberty, faith, and a whole host of other topics. So I hope you enjoy the conversation and check out Bob's podcast. Hopefully that'll whet your appetite and you can listen to more. Enjoy. Well, hello, Norman. Thanks for joining us. And you have made it to episode nine of the Bob Murphy Show. So you're still in the top 10. How about that? It's it's fantastic. It's an honor to be here, Bob. And thanks so much for having me. Sure thing. So with this one, I think we should probably um, focus in the beginning just on what the Libertarian Christian Institute is for the benefit of, of some of my listeners who maybe you know aren't familiar with that. So maybe in your own words, can you just explain and then afterwards, we'll circle back and even get some of your own personal uh, history involved and in how you came to found it. But just for people who don't know what it is, what what is the LCI? Sure. So LCI, the Libertarian Christian Institute, is something that I founded kind of flowing from my, my website that I started back in 2008 called libertarianchristians.com. And uh, we are we have a particular mission in the libertarian movement today, and that is that we are we are we exist to equip the church to promote a free society. Uh, we believe that Christian libertarianism, or that libertarianism per se, is the most consistent way for Christians to have a political philosophy. It's the most consistent expression of Christian political thought. And so that's, we're here in order to try and persuade Christians of that point and bring more of them into the idea that to be most faithful to our calling as Christians in the political sphere, that we should understand and adhere to a libertarian political philosophy. Okay, great. Now, you know, you and I are friends and everything, and you know, I've spoken at your events and, you know, you guys interviewed me. So clearly this is very friendly, but let me, I think it's, I can do you the most help here by playing devil's advocate, as it were, and pushing back on some of this stuff for the listeners who might be skeptical. So, and I'm also telling that to the listeners that here, that that I'm I'm consciously doing that in this particular interview, just because I want Norman to be able to to make the strongest case. So one thing I could imagine someone saying, uh, so let's, let's consider a Christian who maybe even largely agrees with you politically on things. Do you ever encounter people who say something along the lines of, you know, the whole point of mere Christianity, you know, C.S. Lewis's book is he doesn't like linking Christianity to all these pet political causes. And, you know, if you're a Christian, that's the most important thing, period. And so aren't you kind of making it sound like politics is, is really what's important to you guys and you're just grabbing onto Christianity sort of as a, as a, as a hook to try to get people to think like you do on politics? Yeah, I think that, 
that's a reasonable thing to respond as a Christian towards what we're doing. I think it's it behooves us though to recognize that in today, especially in you know, you know the American political arena, that Christianity is used as a means of trying to wield power at points all across the political spectrum. And our statement to the contrary is that being Christians means that we eschew political power. It's not about trying to grasp it for ourselves so that we can start controlling things better or that we can enforce a a Christian society upon others or get what we want out of political power, but rather to get rid of political power in the first place. The libertarian idea is that people should be free to do as they will so long as they're not initiating aggression against others. And that is essentially what we're trying to promote as Christians as well, that we don't we don't have the right to go around and bashing people's heads in and making them follow us from a religious point of view. And we don't have the right to organize society around those things as well. And on the contrary, we're supposed to act peacefully to our fellow man, regardless of where they're coming from, religiously or culturally or whatever. And so instead we we recognize that, you know, we need to we need to think differently about our politics. And if we in America kind of continue to fall into the trap that you know, in order to be faithful Christians, you need to be a Republican. You got to be a, a hardcore political conservative, or you got to agree with these social justice warriors and we got to redistribute wealth because the rich are evil or something to that effect and follow more along the lines of the left. Then, you know, we're doing, we're doing even worse in, in that respect than what even I think C.S. Lewis is even describing in mere Christianity. So in effect, you know, while it is a reasonable thing to suggest to say that, well, you know, a Christian via the mere Christianity principle here just shouldn't have any political ideas whatsoever is improper in, in our point of view. And I don't think that C.S. Lewis would agree with that uh, suggestion as well as being an, a proper interpretation of what he suggested. In fact, he had many things to say about politics, and many of which, if he were uh, still around today, would probably kind of fall into what might be considered a libertarian camp. And one of our, our dear friends of LCI, David Thoreau, in fact, who's the uh, head of the Independent Institute, is a lifelong Christian and has written about C.S. Lewis's views on politics in this regard and has some wonderful things to say in this respect. We definitely would commend his work on C.S. Lewis to your listeners and definitely recommend that to them. Okay, well, I like that answer. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you might. <laughs> and and you, I'm jotting down notes here as you're talking because there's lots of different things that I did want to touch on in this interview and, and you're actually anticipating a lot of it. Would you agree with this is, is perhaps one way of dealing with that sort of objection or express what your view is, is it's, it's pretty common. You go to church and you're there on Sunday listening to the sermon and the preacher is upset with people and says, look, it, I don't want you just to, to come here and sing songs and you know, you're all about Jesus on Sunday. And then when you go back to work tomorrow, you're back in the secular world and you, know, you, you live as the world lives for the next six days until I see you next week. So that, that, you know, that's a pretty common refrain in sure. many churches. And so is, is, is one way of viewing what you're doing to say, look at all we're saying is that, yeah, if you're, if you're a Christian, you know, that, that should influence your political views. And especially given that at least in American society, a lot of people have come to believe that, oh yeah, if you're a Christian and that quote affects your politics, that means you're a right wing, you know, pro-military kind of person. Is, is, or a left-wing socialist of some type. Yeah, I, I suppose that is, yeah, that that is more on the rise too. I guess for my my personal experiences, whatever to me, especially if you're talking about evangelicals oh, in yeah. American politics, then yeah, that does have a very right-wing flavor to it. 
And so is, is that part of it that you're saying, look, it's it's not that your politics should have nothing to do with, you know, your your spiritual views. And, and we're just trying to show people this is what we think the consistent application would be. Yeah, I, I think it, it will take it one step further in that it's not only that, that Christian, your Christian faith should affect your politics, but it should affect it in a way that you probably wouldn't anticipate. See, again, the way that so many people think is that, well, if, I, if I'm going to let my Christianity affect the way I do politics, then really what it means is that this determines the way I'm going to vote. That's, that's the refrain, at least in American parlance, if you will, is that if I'm going to let my Christianity affect uh, the way that I, that I think about politics, it's going to come down to what happens on that first Tuesday in November, but really, it actually is a is a very different thing in our view. Instead, it's more like, what is the proper way to think about societal organization from the ground up? Recognizing that the way that we interact with others in communities has an inherent kind of political bent to it. How do we think about the use of force in various types of scenarios? And, you know, because fundamentally, that's what government is. And, and all of your listeners who understand libertarianism at any deep level kind of recognize that government is force. And so for, for those of us who are Christians, we have a responsibility if we're going to start thinking about moral questions to really think deeply about what the use of force is in and around us in a society. And how do we parse that out in terms of what is proper? What is not? What is self-defense? What isn't? What does the government have to do with that? How do I ethically think about these things? How do I theologically think about these things? And if we have any, any respect for our Christian upbringing, our Christian history, then we have to wrestle with that because we know we know that the interactivity of Christendom with the state has a mixed bag of good and bad throughout the last 2,000 years. And so if we're not aware of that, if we're not thinking about that, then we're not doing justice to our theological history. Okay, well, I like that. And uh, let me, again, just push you a little bit here just for specifics. because oh, this push is, me, man. Yeah, <laughs> because this is, this is important. And I know for many of my listeners— this might be obvious to them, but again, just on the off chance, we have some people listening who they've never thought of it like this. So let's take something like drug prohibition. Sure. And I know you guys uh, had an episode on where Jason Rink was, you know, coming back and reporting from a conference. So we'll, I'll link to the show notes page. Again, people tuning in here, it's bobmurphyshow.com slash nine is where you go to get all the show notes that um, Norman and I here are going to be talking about. So, so a, a standard view, somebody might, understandably think, well, gee, if, if you're a Christian and you want to talk about having that influence your politics, you should support legislators who are going to enforce morality. And if I happen to believe, and I know this is a separate question, but suppose for the sake of argument, I think that using certain types of drugs is immoral and, you know, it, it violates, the, you know, God's, your body's a temple and, you know, you, you shouldn't be doing that kind of stuff. Doesn't that mean, therefore, I should go vote for people who are going to crack down on that and uphold a moral Christian society? So I'm guessing you don't agree with that view, but specifically, what's the problem with that kind of mindset? Yeah, yeah, we definitely do not agree with uh, prohibitionist type views, and from you know root and branch, man. By way of background, of course, we are we believe that the the war on drugs is a is a crime against humanity, <laughs> and should never have been instituted in the first place. But it doesn't mean that we think necessarily that that means that the substances one might imbibe are all you know inherently good activities. 
it's entirely possible to inadvertently give away your moral agency by imbibing substances and losing control over yourself. And we don't want to do that as Christians. It's not proper for us. We, we do believe that. But that doesn't mean that we should institute laws that prohibit people from having uh, the freedom to do so. That That's actually, you know, if you will, that's a, a treatment that doesn't fit the crime, a treatment that's worse, a cure that's worse than the disease, if you will. Uh, we, we don't believe that those sorts of things are appropriate for us in how we institute our societies. So yeah, it, it's, it's okay to believe that certain things are immoral, but they shouldn't be made illegal. And there are all sorts of ways in which we can, you know, elucidate those sorts of uh, scenarios as well. Uh, one that I occasionally like to bring forward is that, you know, if, if, if all you care about is just trying to say like, well, you shouldn't do things that could potentially harm oneself. Well, do you allow your kids to play in football leagues? I mean, does that, do you, do you allow them to play sports? Because that, that certainly has the capability of resulting in accidents that might uh, inhibit one's brain or might uh, break an arm or, you know, bust a lip or something like that. It, to what extent are you going to prevent that? How far are you willing to go? So it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm just that, you know, well, if you allow your kid to, to play football, well, then you certainly should be okay with them shooting heroin or something. That's not what I'm saying at all. But you can't just make that a standard. That doesn't work like that. You can't just encapsulate that in law and then just expect that to be okay. It's not going to work and it'll result in, in things you would never have wanted to have it in the begin with. And I think the war on drugs is the perfect example of that. And that's why it's a linchpin of libertarian thought. Anybody who's anyone in libertarianism ought to be 110% against the drug war. Yeah, I, I agree with that too, that it's, you know, there are other issues, you know, something like immigration where I can see how people might have different views or something even, even more. I was like, should homeless people be allowed to sleep in the library if it's owned <laughs> yeah. by the government? You can see how bona fide libertarians could disagree on that, you know, and yeah, it's sure. not obvious, you know, but... But yeah, something like putting people in cages because they smoked a particular plant, that does seem- It's just insane. Yeah, like how yeah. it's it's kind of stretching language if you want to say there's a libertarian yeah. case for that. Let me, yeah. um, but as far as the Christians, and yeah, and I've, I've tried in other contexts to get people to see that. And the, the one that I think is pretty obvious is to say something like, look, do you think it should be illegal to not accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And most American <laughs> Christians would, you know, would be horrified by that. And they'd say, oh, no, right. you know, that's uh, uh, not, Can't not force it. Yeah. Not just because of their, you know, views on, on politics and how they've been trained to have separation of church and state, but also as Christians, you know, just realizing that, you know, you're not really. You can't compel belief. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, that's not, that's not doing Christianity. If, if anything, it might be hurting it because then maybe people are only saying it, you know, out of road obedience. So they're not really thinking it through. Yeah. Um, and and so, you know, and I would say, so can't you see why, you know, there's something that where your literal soul is at stake and yet you don't want to compel that. Why then, you know, would you want to use force for something relatively trivial like, you know, smoking a plant? And another one I could use is something like infidelity where – because I think somebody sure. might understandably push back against your football analogy and say, well, there – there's benefits and risks like, you know, there's athleticism and team camaraderie and blah, blah, blah. Whereas, you know, I don't think that using heroin has any upside. So let's just ban it all together. But something like, you know, cheating on your wife, there's no upside to that either. And yet I think most evangelicals even would agree that, yeah, you shouldn't actually go to jail for that, you know. But, but Bob, let me push back on you okay. for a second, okay. because think about it. 
the way in which the war on drugs has progressed has really set us back in the possibility of using these types of substances on a valid scientific basis for various types of treatments. I mean, we are we know for a fact, and we we even use opium in various ways as uh, as painkillers in in legitimate scenarios. And we know for a fact as well that certain cannabinoids are uh, that that are can be extracted from cannabis plants, marijuana, right? That you can you can use these plants for a variety of different substances, both industrial and medical, in order to bring various benefits. And it's crazy to think that because of prohibition, we are completely probably 50 to 80 years behind the times or where we could have been in terms of scientific advancement and medical progression uh, as a result of these things. That's that's nuts. And so there are these little tendrils of secondary effects that, you know, a la Henry Hazlitt here, if you want to, if we want to get there, right, that the ancillary effects of these types of economic laws, if you will, or things that are put into place that prevent people from doing as they will, that have, that we miss out on. And so, yeah, there are benefits to actually having these substances available on some level, at least for research and development. So, yeah, I mean, I, we're, we're kind of stretching the metaphor here a little bit as compared to, you know, say a football team or something. But there are benefits that we are that we miss out on because of prohibition. Yeah, I know when I was in Tennessee and I was working with, um, you know, some groups there that were looking at at least medicinal use and so on. And there were cases where like some family had to leave the state because their daughter was having seizures and, you know, they moved, they moved yeah. to Colorado or something and, you know, they were getting medical doctors. So I guess you, you just flipped it on me and you're saying, no, there's far more benefits here than, you know, scoring a touchdown there, or something, throwing, I, I, <laughs> throwing a pigskin around. Arguably so. Yeah. <laughs> For arguably a recreational so. sport where people are getting concussions. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. And, and again, obviously, I'm playing devil's advocate here, just trying to sure. say what the, oh, yes, what the natural response would be. And that's why, though, going back to, I say, okay, something like adultery, where clearly, yeah. you know, any normal Christian's going to say there's no benefit to that whatsoever. But you could see how you, one might say, yep, that's very immoral. It's a sin. And yet, do you agree? Maybe it would be a bad idea for the state to throw people in cages for doing that. And a lot of them would at least get the idea of that. Yeah. Um, well, kind of, kind of as an aside here, I think it's worthy of note for all of us libertarians that like these sorts of things about like scientific advancement in the absence of the state here, like that prohibition has, has hindered us in this respect. I think that as libertarians, we should educate ourselves on those sorts of things. And I would encourage your listeners to do so because that provides us with a very clear argument for why we are missing out on something. And we all know that the way that the state interacts with medical progress is just absolutely heinous. And this is one of those case in points where, you know, everybody is beginning to realize this. So let's get ahead of that curve and start making those arguments even more strongly. Bang on that table and say, like, this should not be. And uh, and really get into that. Because I think we that's a, you know, a beachhead that, that, we, can, that we can really follow up on. Mm-hmm. Since you bring that up, let me just sort of go off on a tangent here for a second and ask you your thoughts it seems to me that for some reason, a lot of the the biggest um, victims of the state's interventions, at least domestically, are not the people who tend to be libertarians, right? So in other words, like, I'm, yeah. yeah, I have to pay a lot of my income and taxes and whatever, but I'm not worried a police officer is going to shoot me. Right. And I probably will not end up in jail for 20 years on some trumped up drug dealing charge or something where, you know, (laughs) evidence was planted on me or you get what I'm saying. And yet the very communities, let's say, or, you know, like someone in the inner city who 
it's hard for them to get a job because of the minimum wage law and other regulations. Uh, you know, the, the police are like an occupying force in certain neighborhoods. The government schools that they're forced to go to don't give them a good education and they're truly dangerous in many areas. You know, maybe the family structure has been perverted by the structure of the welfare state and so on. To, so you can list how government, the sorts of things we as academics could sit back and explain, oh, the, the problems with these particular policy, and yet it, it affects the lives of certain communities a lot more than, you know, me growing up as a middle-class white guy in the suburbs. Right. So I'm just wondering, why is that? One might have thought that the people who would benefit the most from a more libertarian set of policies would be the biggest supporters of it, and yet that doesn't seem to be the case. Wow, what a complicated set of problems, right? I mean, it's probably something that, you know, even to diagnose it requires some real heavy heavy thinking right off the bat, right? And in, and in, even in doing so, we could be uh, in danger of not really truly understanding some of the individualized circumstances mm -hmm. beyond that they experience. And that's that's really hard. But I guess, you know, from my point of view, there's so much that's deeply entrained there that we kind of have to approach it very gently. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a, no there's no easy solution, but um, I do have some friends who uh, who are more involved with those sort of communities from the outset. And they're pretty well convinced that if you eliminate the welfare state just straight out of the gates, that it will take some time. But within a couple of generations, these problems will begin to solve themselves. And it's not something that can really be forced. There are lessons that will have to be learned, you know, individually. Things that, that are just going to have to, that, that you can't just educate their way out of this or something like that. It's going to take some more experience. It's going to take more time and just a lot more gentle observation and talking and all of that stuff. And it's going to involve churches. It's going to involve nonprofits. It's going to involve schools. It's going to involve just plain old interactions from just an individual to individual basis. But if there's any policy that is affecting it most readily, it's going to be the welfare state. The problem there, of course, is that the people who are entrained in the welfare state, of course, they see that as being their means of sustenance right off the bat. And so they're not, it, they're disincentivized really in, in many respects to recognize that as being their principal issue. So I hope that someday that we'll be able to continue through the educational process, get to the point where it's, it, it begins to be recognized that sticking with the welfare state is what is entrenching these problems more and more. But I'd be hard-pressed to say how to get there. If I knew, that'd probably mean you should put me in charge and let me just run the whole show. But that's certainly not a good idea either. Mm -hmm. uh, so I hope that down the horizon, I hope that our churches are part of that, that as we try to renew people's minds through the churches today, uh, that we get to the point where we recognize the dignity of work, that we recognize the dignity of the family and sticking together despite problems, uh, rather than running from them, that we begin to heal those rifts from all different points of view, whether it's from race or economic class or these bitter political divides that are that are uh, that that tear people apart as well. All of that is relevant, and there's no there's no real single solution to it for sure. All right. Well, thank you. I yeah, it's I agree. It's a really d deep issue, and it's tough. Uh, you know, so. It's my personal thought is that there is some element of 
certain people not feeling like that uh, that others really care about their situation. It's more like an offhand, like, oh yeah, well this would help your, you know, the inner city, but not not feeling like there's a genuine concern. And so yeah. I think there's oh, yeah. that that element too. So let, let's circle back. We we've alluded to it. Definitely, I have noticed that. I mean, you you just see it. It's and you spent some time in the South as well, and I notice it more. So I grew up in upstate New York, but spent a lot of time in in Tennessee, and then now I'm in Texas. So I've certainly seen this, and I often go to church in in Florida and in Alabama, depending on where I happen to be traveling, and you know when when it falls to be a Sunday. <laughs> and yeah. it's uh, it's undeniable that there there is this streak in American evangelical Christianity for sure that's very, I don't want to say pro-war because that's a loaded term, but definitely pro-military and real, like it would be, they would be very skeptical of somebody who was saying, I disagree with U.S. foreign policy. Right. And uh, and I remember I was in a church in Nashville and it was like one of the anniversaries of 9-11 and they just played a compilation from Fox News, you know, celebrating the troops and 9-11 and, you know, showing clips of George Bush, you know, giving real the stern speeches and so on. And the whole place stood up and clap. And I, I didn't, I didn't stand up and clap and I felt really awkward, but I was like, what, why are we, you know, <laughs> the, I, don't, I don't understand why the Bush administration's response to 9-11 is something that we want to, you know, celebrate without discussion at the beginning of a church service that, that struck me as really out of place. So I'll just stop there. And what, how do you feel about all that? What's going on here? You know, Bob, I've been involved since a little, being a little kid in the so-called Churches of Christ. Uh, this is from the Stone Campbell Restorationist tradition. And one of the distinctives about this denomination is that it doesn't tend to celebrate these sorts of things very readily. I have literally zero memories of being a kid and going into a service near like July 4th or something like that. And suddenly being, you know, bombarded with the so-called hymns that revolve around the state, you know, America, the beautiful or God bless America or something like that. There are also never uh, in churches of Christ, are you going to see flags at the front of the, of the auditorium or something to that effect? So to me, you know, when I began to even notice that that was a thing, either, you know, via visiting other congregations or just having friends, you know, as I got older, kind of relay these sorts of facts and things that were happening, it always puzzled me from the outset. And that was even before I was a libertarian, for that matter. Now I see that as being, I see it in two ways. One is that I think it's just kind of crazy to celebrate militarism in a house of worship that is supposed to be dedicated to the Prince of Peace. Mm-hmm. So that's as sort of just a, uh, if, even from just a non-Christian perspective for a second, if you were to put these words together, it kind of seems crazy. But then from a theological point of view, I begin to kind of wonder like, well, wait a second, what is really, what is really the point of our worship? And what do we really care about as it pertains to, you know, the service of God on a, a particular Sunday morning. What is the point of these worship services that we repeatedly do? Why do we why do we do it over and over again for that matter? And the more I think about that, the more that I have to conclude that any type of activity such as this that is deflecting against the worship of God and the act of communal worship together is got to be something that we should avoid. And uh, and it's one thing entirely, especially for our, you know, 
living in the society where there are people who are not libertarians and go to churches and they might have kids who are in the military or something. And it's totally one thing to say like, well, I'd like for you, this church to pray for my son who is uh, in the military and is overseas right now because I'm concerned about him or something to that effect. I get that and I'm not objecting to it, but it is an entirely different notion to repeatedly and profusely just continue to pray for like American victory over our over enemies or something like that in the worship of God, as though it is incumbent upon us as Christians to have a particular stance about who gets to live and who gets to die in this respect. And that just seems, that to me seems very inappropriate. And, you know, if we're going to, if at the very least, uh, and I've written about this before, at the very least, if we're going to be involved in, in such activities in our congregations, and we should be very careful about how we do it. We should instead pray for resolution of conflict, the minimization of death and destruction, that all can go home and start living normal lives again, rather than this kind of uh, rah, rah, shish, boom, bah, let's drone strike and, and go home and after everybody's dead or something like that, which, which is effectively what, you know, many of these things are, you know, are celebrating and praying for and whatnot. And then, you know, kind of the corollary to that is that I, I certainly don't think it's appropriate to deflect away from the worship of God and, and into the, the celebration of statism and, and uh, of state power. Like, is it just, is it appropriate to have these types of things, um, you know, that, that distract us from uh, what our purpose is in, in the church worship service in the first place. And that sort of American civil religion, which is completely accepted for the most part by the majority of Americans today, I think we really need to rethink that. And hopefully, you know, if I were to, if I had my druthers, they would look more like the churches of Christ in this regard, where we don't have these sorts of things. We understand what worship is for primarily and, and avoid these kinds of distractions and problems that are associated with trying to, you know, <laughs> celebrate the state in, in lieu of the, the worship of, of the Lord. Yeah. And here, of course, the classic is Mark Twain's war prayer. Yeah. Uh, right? <laughs> for, yeah. I just, I just pull it up here for the listeners who don't know what we're talking about. So Mark Twain did this short story where, you know, tells the tale there's a church service and, you know, the troops are off and the, you know, the, the minister prays for the troops and for victory and, you know, for the Lord to have his hand over them and guide them to victory. And the stranger gives the, you know, says, ah, but let, let me, let's finish the prayer. Let's be more specific. And just to give a quick excerpt here. So he's saying, uh, Oh Lord, our God, help us tear their soldiers to bloody shreds with our shells. Help us to cover their smiling fields with the pale forms of their patriot dead. Help us to drown the thunder of the guns with the shrieks of their wounded writhing in pain. Help us to lay waste their humble homes with a hurricane of fire. Help us to wring the hearts of their unoffending widows with unavailing grief. Da -da -da -da, and he goes on. So the point being that, as you're saying there, Norman, he was kind of saying, okay, let's think this through that, you know, you want to be careful with what you're praying for here because it's it's certainly one thing to sit, you know, to pray for police officers or firefighters who are going out, you know, and they have dangerous jobs and you want them to come home safely. And certainly it makes sense to pray for the safety of the troops or whatever, meaning we don't want, but if you go beyond that and it seems like it's a celebration of America's cause, you know, in the Middle East or something like there, it, you know, it, it does seem like, aren't you kind of indirectly praying for our guys to kill more of them than vice versa? It, it does, you know, start to get into awkward territory to say the least. And like you say, it's the kind of thing I'm talking about for those who you know, don't go to church or something. I mean, it is not merely praying for the protection of certain people. Obviously, you know, that's 
totally understandable and, and quite valid, but to where it's cl- it, it's made clear that, oh, this church, we support what George Bush is doing and you know, in retaliation of 9-11, whereas, like I said, I, I certainly was not for that. <laughs> and, I yeah. just, and I didn't like the fact that the service was being hijacked. And I'm sure there were plenty of people in the room who didn't agree with it, but have stood up and clapped just because of social pressure. And they didn't want to look like a weirdo like me just sitting there waiting for them to sit down again. Yeah, um, it's mimetic. You got to follow along with the crowd. <laughs> so, but so, so there, I mean, we, you and I are in agreement and we've we've said, Hey, we disagree with this trend. And you're saying, I guess that in your background, you didn't seem to be exposed to it as much as I did in the, the sorts of um, yeah. churches I went well, to. I love the church of the Christ in this respect. And uh, mm-hmm. I, there's so much of our history in the church of the Christ that kind of alludes to these sorts of things. And, and kind of as a, a point of reference here is that, you know, we even have a guy in the church of the Christ history, which goes back into the early 19th century named David Lipscomb, who was uh, who was so radically against the state and against war and against slavery? He was a he lived in Tennessee in uh, the 1840s and 50s and was a and was an abolitionist mm-hmm. and uh, it, you know and this is in again this is in Tennessee a slave state right at right. the time and being an abolitionist at that point in time was was not exactly something that was uh, socially acceptable and then when the civil war broke out he he wrote a letter that he sent both to uh, uh Lincoln and Jefferson Davis uh that basically argued for exempting Christians from the draft because it was inappropriate for Christians to fight especially against their brothers you know in in conflicts such as this the irony of this or at least the nuanced message was that he's kind of in that letter su- suggesting i believe if one is to fight in such a conflict he's kind of questioning their christian bona fides at that point which was a, a very you know kind of surreptitious way of suggesting that you know <laughs> one shouldn't one should truly question their willingness to fight in these sorts of conflicts in the first place. And that was, he was anti-war throughout the Civil War. And uh, it was remarkable the way that he, you know, that he was in this respect. And other people in uh, the Church of Christ history are like this as well. Many of our other luminaries like Alexander and Thomas Campbell uh, or Tolbert Fanning, who was the mentor of David Lipscomb. And so, yeah, this is part of our history. I would say that it, un- unfortunately, you know, the Churches of Christ have, Following World War One, in particular, they kind of began to sway away from those ideals to a certain extent. But you know, it's something that it's very interesting in our history, and 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 still has effects upon us. In so far as you know, like I said, we don't have those hymns, we don't have those flags, you don't tend to see those types of services. Those are still very present in in our tradition. Okay, well, that's interesting. Uh, so I'm glad you are stressing the fact that. It- I guess is part of it then that as so often happens in the United States, that what gets portrayed on, on television is not necessarily representative of the actual underlying reality. That, there's um, so many different, you know, facets mm-hmm. of it, right? And there's so much that about, I mean, American Christendom is very splintered in many respects, even though it has centrally the same theology about Jesus and, and, and mm. the Bible and so on and so forth. But there's so many different expressions of it too. But I, I think it's worthy to point out like these sorts of things though, because it's not, a monolith of expression either. Before we leave this subject, let, let's just push it a little bit further because what I do want to understand is or, or get your thoughts on to the extent that there is some of, you know, there is some truth to the stereotype, let's say that, oh, yeah. you know, there tends, generally speaking, certainly evangelicals in the United States tend to be Republican and they're more likely to favor a particular intervention, you know, rather than favoring diplomacy, let's say, at least compared to 
people from other denominations or whatnot. So where does that come? So here, I'll just give you a rough pass of where I'm coming from. As I think, you know, the church is where I went, where I could definitely see that pattern. It had something to do with this, I don't know, train of thought or, or outcome where the pastor was very much um, about, hey, what's right is right, what's wrong is wrong, and I don't like modern secular culture engaging in double think and moral relativism. And there are standards and you go to the word of God to see what those standards are and we got to hold firm. And someone with that view, I can see why psychologically it would sort of naturally follow that, well, no, I mean, if there are bad people out there and they mean us harm, what are you supposed to do? And and also that the type of person who goes into the military is, you know, someone willing to put his life on the line and you know, there's a sort of like duty and sacrifice. And so you can see somebody raised in a Christian household and, you know, thinks I'm just an instrument. If you believed in the legitimacy of what was happening and you, you know, thought that the United States was selected by God historically and it was, you know, unique among nations or at least special among modern nations. And then, you know, you had that, if you were steeped in that background, you can kind of understand how that would flow through and, you know, you would you would look at those guys as the vanguard and look at their putting their lives on the line of these lily livered liberals whining about stuff safely behind, you know, <laughs> in the protection, the umbrella of security that, you know, these Christian boys and, and girls <laughs> give us on the front lines. So I'll stop that. You get what the picture I'm painting. Oh, yeah. And so how, how do you feel about that? Wow. So there's so much that could be said there. <laughs> but, you know, one of the things that, you know, in, in what you're describing here that kind of struck me is that. On the one hand, these are people, ministers who want to stand against things like moral relativism, and they want to uphold objective standards of, and so on and so forth. But there is a kind of, if not willful, then a misunderstood blindness toward basic understanding of the structure of ethics and what where the state fits into that, that kind of begins to make the foundation for that fall apart. And I think that's kind of where, I'll, you know, going we'll circle back even more, like this is kind of where LCI, the Libertarian Christian Institute, really wants to take a stand. And that's like the understanding that force is the principal means by which the government operates is central to how we think about this structuring of, of society uh, and how we think of the structure of, of how the state operates. If it is the case that force initiated is unjustifiable uh, unless it is in response to priorly initiated force, again, that's just a restatement of the non-aggression principle there, then those people who claim some sort of preeminence and an exemption to that type of moral principle are actually the ones who are first and foremost bringing chaos into the world today. That is to say, like, well, look, if, if, you're, if you are suggesting that the only way that we can deal with problems in the world is to let certain people be exempt from an objective moral standard, then you've already lost the battle. Then you've already lost something about civilization that's very basic and very central to the way that we interact as individuals just throughout our daily lives. And that, that to me is where like these ministers get it wrong. Is that instead of, of 
what they tend to do is they'll tend to say things like, you know, well, Romans 13 says that, you know, we need to submit to the governing authorities. And that gives the government its, a, its justification in Scripture. And that means all of it is okay. That's why we can celebrate it. And that's why it's just fine to be rah-rah America and, and, and you know, heavily pro-military and all of these things. If that's where they want to start, well, then they're missing out on something very basic about theology and about the nature of morality and ethics that is, is far more important than uh, than going and proof texting Romans 13 about what is permissible for state action. The more that we give away these types of moral imperatives and that type of objective moral standard that is important, then the easier it is to just let anything go willy-nilly. Because if it's if the foundational organizational principle of society is Aggression is can be expected from any direction, and as long as it's being done by someone of superior power and authority that we've just arbitrarily said it should have it, well, then it's chaos at that point. So I, I know it's kind of I'm kind of jumping around here a little bit, but I think this is where uh, where the rubber meets the road in so many respects with how we think about theology and ethics in the libertarian arena, if you will. Okay, uh, let, me, that, let me stop you. Okay, Because go th- for this it. is great <laughs> stuff, and I, I had jotted down originally Romans 13 as something to, to bring up with you, so since you've gone there already. Yes, <laughs> preemptive strike. strike. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's go ahead and, and, and deal with that, I do, and I do want to have you read, because you what you just said, I get what you're getting at there, but I'm concerned the casual listener. Remember, we got people that are on treadmills. They're, you know, they're driving around. Somebody just cut them off and they're trying not to swear at them because they know that Jesus wouldn't want them to. So, you know, let's, let's you out of deference for those people or sympathy, let's make sure they don't miss your point there. But let me also, because we might have some listeners who are secular, let me just make sure they get what they're talking about. So Romans 13 is the go-to text for someone who wants to push back against, let's say, libertarian Christians, where who wants to say, no, you guys are taking things too far. You're letting your your political views influence it. The Bible is crystal clear on this stuff. So here, I'll just read uh, the first seven verses. So again, this is uh, Paul's epistle to the Romans, and this is chapter 13, the beginning of it. It's, and I'm reading the the English Standard Version translation. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good." But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed honor to whom honor is owed. And I'll just add here that on April 15th, the uh, the particular website that I go to just, you know, to look up what's the Bible quote for the day, they had that thing about paying your taxes. Oh my and gosh. Like, ah. <laughs> so no way. <laughs> but now so, so let's, let's not be too cheeky here. I mean, you can see how somebody who is a, you know, not a communist or not, you know, not a crazy, but yeah. someone who believes in, you know, the U S constitution and limited government, the way that, you know, the founding fathers gave it. And they hear somebody, some libertarian spouting off saying taxation is theft. 
you can see how they would say, no, look at, well, if you're, if you don't believe the Bible, I guess I can't reason with you, but you know, clearly Romans 13 says unambiguously, you should pay your taxes to the rulers and they're put there by God to enforce the law. And if you, if you're doing good, you got nothing to fear from them. It's only the bad doers who are the ones in, in jeopardy here. And yet that doesn't seem like what you were saying a minute ago, Norman. So what gives? Yeah. Well, I think a lot of it comes down to the very early part of that passage where it talks about, you know, submission. And I think, you know, if we start to think about what is the definition of submission here, submission in the Bible is almost invariably qualified. And so I'm going to go on an exegetical bit here. Go do it. That's what this is all about. Yes. So for, for our uninitiated listeners, it's okay. Exegesis is not a dirty word. It just means that we're explicating or explaining a, uh, in, in this particular context, a scripture. And we're going we're gonna to exegete a little bit uh, and, and go into some of the details and, and try to understand the context and the meaning at a deeper level than just something where we read surface and just take a surface meaning, okay? So in particular, we care about what is submission here. And it's, this is a really tricky word to understand in the Bible at times. I mean, for instance, if you go to the book of Ephesians, there's a particular passage that says we should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then almost in the same breath, Paul then says, well, wives submit to your husbands. And then in, uh, in, in another passage, the apostle James, or James, the brother of Jesus says, submit yourselves to God. So obviously what we can't assume out of this is that the word submission in these verses means the exact same thing in, in all the other verses, and, and, then, and especially the same meaning as Romans 13, especially when you consider that throughout the Bible, you see a lot of great men and, and women for that matter, you know, whether you're talking about Jesus or Paul, St. Peter, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, David, Elijah, Elisha, you name it, there's all sorts of people in the Bible who are defying state power. And I'm using state very loosely here. I mean, not really the nation state as it evolved in the, you know, in post-biblical times per se, but the kingdoms of, of, of the earth at those points. So, if we were just to say, hey, well, okay. Hey, well, hey, let me just, I just want to stop because you made a yeah. profound point there. So, before turning to the counterexamples of, you know, heroes of the Bible who seem to not be doing what the king tells them to do, you said that word submission and you gave other examples where it was used. Mm-hmm. So is, is your point that it cannot mean complete, unadulterated surrender of your will to somebody else's authority because then how could you possibly at any given moment both be subject to God and to the ruler? Like, yeah, if, exactly. Okay, okay, gotcha. Yeah, so there, there's some there's something more going on here. You can't just read into it whatever you want because if you're going to try to interpret Scripture with other Scripture and try to understand the full context and whatnot, you can't just say it means the same thing because otherwise you end up in performative contradictions right off the bat. Moreover, and, and perhaps more importantly, when you have all of these counterexamples in the Bible about how one is to interact with the state, it begins to develop these sort of counter, counterintuitive answers to like, how would you, do, how is this legitimate, but then this isn't, or something to that effect. So I think what we have to understand submission in the context of a biblical theology of the state. And how do we get there? Well, you don't do that by starting with Romans 13. In fact, what you really have to do is you have to go back throughout the entire Bible and see what does the Bible say about the nature of the state, its origin, its destiny, and its relationship to God. Then and only then, if you understand all of that stuff, can you then begin to parse out, here's what submission means in the context of Romans 13, okay? 
So that's where, and, and I have an article about this, by the way. I'll, I'll send you the link, uh, Bob, for your show notes. It's called Theology Doesn't Begin and End with Romans 13, in fact. And uh, it's a fairly short article. And I'm just going to kind of uh, go through some of the, the central points. Uh, you know, you'll see the same stuff there. And I think there's really, there's four central points that kind of get us where we want to go before we address Romans 13. The first example is the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. We could argue that that is the origin story of the state. And in, in the Tower of Babel, what we learn is that the state is organized as an opposition against God. In the Tower of Babel story, literally what is going on in this weird, weird story in the book of Genesis is that they're trying to build a tower to heaven. That's what they say they're doing. They're going to try to overthrow God even in various ways. You can read it and reread that into the, into the passage that they're trying to get to heaven and take over essentially. And God says, uh-uh, this ain't going to happen. And he stops it. Uh, the implication is that this origin story is saying that these types of organizations that claim that type of power are rebellious and idolatrous, and they desire to become and replace God. That's what the state is. And, and that's really no surprise considering like literally the modern state today claims, I, I almost would argue that they claim as much or more power than God himself. When, you know, you, the, the, the American government basically says that it can, you know, birth you, clothe you, feed you, educate you, make sure that you're provided for when you're poor, uh, make sure that you have food when you're hungry, make sure that you're having fun when you're down, make sure that you, you know, can get health care when you need it and et cetera and et cetera. It'll even make sure that you have a job. And of course, you know, when you're dead, it'll It'll, it'll make sure and provide for you that in that respect too. I don't even think God himself claims to do all those things for you anymore. I mean, that's I don't crazy. remember there being any scriptural support for a school lunch program. That's for sure. Well, exactly right. I mean, <laughs> so, so that's the first example. The second is first Samuel eight. First uh, Samuel eight is uh, where Israel asks for a king. And uh, for our biblically inclined viewers here, this is where, you know, Israel goes from being kind of governed by the judges. Uh, and in particular, the, the final judge being Samuel himself. And, uh, and they begin to have a kingship. And the, that first king is Saul. And, and to get there, the people of Israel tell Samuel, it's like, hey, we want a king. Give us a king. Uh, select someone from among us to be a king. And Samuel says, well, here's what's going to happen if I do that for you. And, and actually, God instructs him to say certain things. And he basically says, like, guess what this king is going to do? He's going to tax you. He's going to take your land. He's going to take your sons and daughters. He's going to make your sons his soldiers, and he's going to send them to the front lines and get them killed. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to make them his wives, and so on and so forth. He's basically saying, like, <laughs> ironically enough, it sounds pretty much like what presidents do these days anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's that's what he's that's what he's doing. He's, he's telling like, this is what happens when you execute government power against people like this. You don't have to do it this way, guys. You can have me, God, is what he's saying here. You can have God govern you through these judges that you know have been you know working. That when you fall away, I bring them forward and bring you back to me. But what you're saying right now is you don't want that anymore. And we know the rest of the story. That other than, you know, David and Solomon, uh, where they had, you know, many great years, of course, uh, other than that, it's pretty much a, an unmitigated disaster throughout the whole thing. The third example I'd always bring forward is, is the book of Matthew in the Gospels, and, and in particular, Matthew chapter 5 and the temptations of Jesus. Matthew as a whole is actually really clear that the kingdom of God is nothing like the kingdom of men. And in Matthew chapter five, in particular, in the third temptation of Jesus, where Satan brings uh, Jesus up to a high place and shows him all the kingdoms of the earth. And Satan says to Jesus, if you will only bow down and worship me, I will give all of this to you. And, and you would think that if, uh, if, if the state is such a good thing in the measure of God, and it was, you know, somehow some sort of biblical and great thing that Jesus would go like, well, Satan, that's just silly. I mean, all of these states are, 
are established by God anyway. And of course, everybody's supposed to submit to them and it's just fine. I don't know why you think he'd even give them to me. They're all wonderful. No, that's not what Jesus says at all. In fact, it's, he actually almost affirms Satan's statement as though that is something absolutely Satan could do. He doesn't contradict Satan with a, like, that doesn't belong to you. You wouldn't be able to do that anyway if you tried. He says, instead, no, like, he accepts that that is a possibility. He accepts it and says, no, of course I'm not. I, I, how dare I would think to worship anyone but God, but God alone and rejects that on that basis, not on the basis that Satan couldn't do what he was going to say he was going to do. And also just that that's a wonderful point. I know you still got another one to make, but just to underscore that, because I could see some people saying, well, but the important thing there was, you know, Jesus not being, you know, succumbing to temptation and he didn't, you know, make the related point that you don't have. But elsewhere, I mean, Jesus refers to him as like the, the prince of this world or the ruler of this world. Right? Oh, yeah. So so that's not like just something out of Hollywood that you make a deal with the devil or something. I mean, that really that it, that has biblical support. Like, that, we're supposed to yeah. take that seriously. Right. You know, I mean, I, I don't know how you do that otherwise. Obviously, God's in charge and, you know, Satan can't do anything without God ultimately in some sense letting him do it. But, yeah. yes, that that is not something that Hollywood has made up, that there is a sense in which people can get earthly riches and power and whatever if they make a quote, a deal with the devil. Right, right. Well, and so the fourth example kind of goes into that a little bit more as well, and that's the book of Revelation. Now, despite what anybody wants to say about, you know, how Revelation explains exactly what's going to happen at the end of the age or whatnot, I'm not going to be concerned with that overall. What I'm concerned here in this particular context are the symbols. Revelation is a big book of symbols. And if we're going to talk about those symbols in any in any way, shape, or form at first, we have to start thinking about them in light of the Roman Empire and, and how they relate to Rome, because that's what they first meant to the people who initially received that text from John the Apostle. And so what we kind of read from that right off the bat is that the symbol uh, the symbols in in revelation that kind of are about rome and the empire there are all about how it is in conflict with the kingdom of god period that is the only thing that we can that, that we can kind of take from that at that point and you know so what we can then just say is that all right if this is then to have meaning for us down the line then we need to extend those symbols a little bit what are the transcendent aspects of those symbols that we can glean uh, from the text. And I think the right way to think about that is that, you know, there weren't any other significant states at the time that makes sense. So what we kind of bring forward those symbols are, uh, is that those represent also the way that states behave in the future as well. Uh, they're not named per se, but they're there in principle. And so ultimately the destiny of Rome in that text is destruction and the destiny of all states, all th these kingdoms that set themselves up in opposition to God is destruction. So that's, that's the fourth point. So think about this for a second then. If these points are all valid, how then should one interpret submission in the context of this entity, the state that is founded in rebellion against God, is obviously abusive towards people, a la 1 Samuel 8, is absolutely in conflict to the kingdom of God, as per Matthew, and is absolutely destined for destruction, as per Revelation. Is submission then just supposed to be do whatever that evil institution says? I don't think so. That doesn't make any sense anymore. So, you know, first and foremost, then I think the, the point then is that submission in the context of Romans 13 is primarily prudential. 
And I, I'm going to kind of leave it at that. Um, you know, the idea is that, you, you know, don't do stupid things and compromise your position in the world in the sense of like, don't do something that's going to put your family and church at risk. Don't, you know, just become a tax resistor just because taxation is theft. That can put you in jail and you're not going to be able to be a, a great witness in the world today if you, if you just constantly are throwing yourself up against that power, you know, like, a, you know, tilting against the windmill here. So that's kind of where I'm, I go with that. And if you want even more about that, I recommend uh, my essay that I've, I wrote a number of years ago, uh, actually predates libertarianchristians.com itself, called New Testament Theology of the State. And you can find it on libertarianchristians.com. We'll make sure that's in uh, the show notes as well. Uh, but I think, you know, that really kind of encapsulates so much of what our message is as the Libertarian Christian Institute is trying to explain these features of the world, of power, of the state, and of ethics and, and theology to people in a new way so that they kind of get the, the veil lifted from their eyes that the church often kind of fails to, uh, to teach us. And that's not to say that you shouldn't be involved in your church, that the church doesn't have good things to say. I mean, that, that's not the point, man. The point is just that there's so much more to learn. There's so many things that we make mistakes on. And this seems to be really crucial for the good of mankind itself. And that if we continue down this path of ever darkening statism, then we miss out on so much bounty that the Lord has in store for us. If we just would interact peaceably with each other and eschew these acts of aggression from an institutional level. Okay, well, that, that's great stuff. And it seems, and this was something too that I wanted to push on. Let me tr- let's set up a dichotomy and because I think I, I see where you're coming from. One could imagine saying, I'm a Christian and I happen to have libertarian views. And it's really just the result of my knowledge of how the world works in terms of my secular study that, you know, I studied some economics and it seems like, oh, actually, you know, minimum wage laws might perversely hurt low-income workers or, you know, teenagers, the very people I think we're helping with a minimum wage hike. So that's why I wouldn't be against it, you know, because as a Christian, I want to help the poor and so on. And so it's more of just a means end sort of thing as I learn cause and effect in the way the world is designed or the way the world works, I might happen to favor libertarian views politically. But another perspective is to say, no, by its very nature of what the state is and your worldview as given by the Bible, that you should be just naturally as as a libertarian if you're a Christian, just because of the, the nature of political action. It's not just that your views happen to fall down on, you know, the quote libertarian answer on various policies. Do you get the dichotomy I'm trying to set up there? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Is, yeah, definitely. I get you. And, and so am I right in saying that you're – it's not merely that after further review, we, we agree with the libertarian <laughs> position on these 16 policy positions. It's that just the, the – like what does it mean to be a Christian in the world and how do you go about doing that and, and you know living like Jesus would want you to? Yeah. It's – you really shouldn't be collaborating with the state in any way. I, I, I – yeah, I basically agree with that. <laughs> now, to be sure, it's not as if we're trying to say, well, if you don't fall right in line with the way that Norman Horn thinks, well, then you must not be a Christian. That's certainly not what we would want to put out there. And it, like I just said, you know, in the previous kind of section, it's like just because churches don't often have this full understanding about the nature of ethics and, and force and these things doesn't mean that they're terrible people or that they don't have good things to say. We look at this as like we're trying to improve upon the modern edifice of what Christendom is to try and correct an error that we see as being rather important for how civilization is organized. And again, that we're missing out on so much 
that God has in store for us if we would just follow the order of society the way that God intends, which is that people act peacefully with one another. And if you institute organizations that have a monopoly of force that are organized with a foundational principle of we get to order people around, and if you don't, we can throw you in prison, like that's that's kind of significant. <laughs> and if you're missing out on that, then you're going to inherently lose out on prosperity as well. Mm-hmm. So there's a, it's like a win-win scenario. I mean, God didn't create this world in such a way that the only way that we can have success and prosperity is if you have somebody just waiting to pull the trigger on whoever doesn't fall in line. Right. Like right. That, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And uh, so, but, but, when it comes down to it, so many Christians just kind of believe that. It's it's so entrained at the base level of the way they think that it takes a lot to kind of snap out of that little, uh, that way of thinking, that prior way of behaving. Mm-hmm. And also, it just circling back to the Romans 13 thing, and I, I know that's a huge area, and we, we could spend lots of episodes even talking about it. Oh, yeah. But the thing that I used when I was a professor at Hillsdale College in I think it was when Brad Berzer invited me to come to his class and give a talk on varieties of anarchism, you know, and I did a whole taxonomy of it, the different types and including Rothbardian anarcho-capitalism. And, you know, so the, the class brushing with a broad stroke here was very you know, Christian conservative kind of thing. Yeah. And somebody brought up Romans 13, you know, and I, well, Hey, like you're, you're pushing too far. And, and I responded and said, well, I'm guessing a lot of people in here supported the Gulf war but, you know, didn't God put Saddam Hussein in power in order to enforce, you know, morality? And the only people who, are, who fear Saddam's power are, are the people who are committing sin, you, you know? And so my point was, yeah, yeah. they clearly are not consistent. Like they might think the U.S. government is noble and so on, but they don't think that every single ruler around the world, you know, is, is beyond reproach. That they, they don't believe that. And so I was like, okay, you yourself don't do what you're telling me Romans 13 means in the context of you know, Rothbardianism, for example. Yeah. You end up with a lot of awkward beliefs if you try to to kind of force this scripture into your theology somehow. Because, you know, it, you don't get around the world a whole lot. Not everybody gets to travel and see everything that goes on and whatnot. Uh, so, you know, to just, I mean, I hate to put it this way, but this kind of Amerocentric way of looking at Romans 13 is really awkward. I mean, that sounds really funny to say, mm-hmm. but it's kind of true. Yeah. Hey, podcast listeners, since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calledtofreedombook.com. Okay, well, now let me throw the listeners a curveball and perhaps you too. So, We've spent some time, let's say, beating up on, you know, right-wing rah-rah evangelicals who are pro-GOP. But I also want to say I've noticed I want to defend them a little bit on this particular issue. And I'm just curious if you what your thoughts are on this. I've seen a lot of criticism of the evangelical leaders who support Trump, even though as you know, as allegations come out that, oh my gosh, he had dalliances with a porn star and he owns casinos and you know, and, uh, how you know these hypocrite. And so, okay, yes, to the extent that somebody like Pat Robertson or whoever would have said Bill Clinton can't be president because he cheated on his wife, and I don't know if he said that, but it wouldn't surprise me if he said something along those lines, then yes, that person is a hypocrite if they now say, hey, all I care about is, you know, Trump's tax cuts and whatever, 
nobody's perfect and you know it's just policy. I don't care what he does in his private life. So yes, yeah, so if, if someone has literally flip-flopped on that issue because it's Bill Clinton versus Trump, then that person's a hypocrite. No problem with me. You know, I, I don't problem. Yeah. But the I think there sometimes people on the left go further and they think that, oh, to be a good Christian, you really couldn't support somebody, a political official who's done anything wrong. And I want to say, well, no, I mean, strictly speaking, evangelicals think everybody quote deserved hell and Jesus saved, you know, that, that it's nobody is good enough in the, in terms of living up to the, what the law required. And so it's, I think that they, they're misunderstanding what Christianity is and perhaps some evangelicals, you know, are there, they have themselves to blame for that misunderstanding, but there's no contradiction to say, yeah, I can overlook the fact that Trump committed mistakes in the past because in your view, everybody is a sinner and fallen and, you know, takes Jesus mercy and so forth. So I, I guess some some of those critiques I don't don't bother me as much that you know how could evangelicals support someone especially if it's somebody who is coming out of you know like Hillary Clinton's supported by groups who have nothing but utter contempt and hatred for Christianity whereas you could say with Trump he's like eh, you know, I don't care one way or the other you know <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I could, in other words I could see well given the choice between those two why they would pick the guy who you know, at least pretends to like them, even though in his personal life, he doesn't live up and certainly doesn't hold himself up as a moral standard bearer. You know, he said, yeah, I'm not perfect. And anyway, you you get where I'm coming from. How do you feel about that? Oh, well, you know, I mean, from my personal point of view, I think there's like a, uh, we can appreciate as both Christians and libertarians when a person in power, like kind of does something we, we like and we can, you know, kind of go, all right, well, you know, kudos to you, while still having utter contempt for the office. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I certainly like I'm I'm on record as saying I'm already against the next president, and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, that's a uh, sounds that's like you're impossible I, to please. Gee, I, I kind of am. I mean, I'm I'm also on record as saying every president ever has sucked, and was the inspiration, in fact, for a website to that effect. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, there's nothing wrong with saying if you enact certain policies you know, that I can appreciate, then I'm going to lodge you for it. But I'll also be the first to stand up and excoriate you the moment you do something that's horrible. And the problem with a lot of the way that American politics tends to play out in the popular sphere is that it's, it's like it's either your red or blue team. That's it. And, and you have to be 110% for the red team and 110% against the blue team and vice versa if you're part of the blue team and against the red team. And that's, that's the way that people want to play. But that's not the way this world is working out. I mean, that, that's not the way it is in front of us right now. So it, it's kind of short-sighted to like, on the one hand, have utter contempt of everything and just trying to just land based on every single point possible when it's so easy, frankly, to just say like, look, this office is a charade. We don't agree with the way that, that this whole organization acts to begin with. It's operating in contempt of the law of God. It operates in contempt of, of the way that we consider natural ethics. And, you know, sure. So we'll we'll be happy to say, you know, good for you, Barack Obama, that you uh, pardoned uh, some, some uh, nonviolent drug offenders. And good for you, Donald Trump, when you lowered, uh, lowered our freaking taxes at some point or another and, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, but that doesn't mean that, you know, we have to be utterly uh, accepting and it doesn't mean that we're not utterly unapproving of the system itself. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of, and, and that's really just like a restatement of the way that libertarians want to think. Like hopefully 
at least in so far as our participation goes, as we understand ourselves as both libertarians and Christians and ethical people in general, that we would never accept uh, and put our support in the form of a voter otherwise, really, defending those people who are tacitly for the use of aggression against a nonviolent people. Mm-hmm. Like that, that, that is where we have to draw our line, that we will not accept you as being representative of us in that respect. Like we do not condone uh, the putting people behind bars for holding a plant. We don't condone the uh, overuse of aggression. We don't condone taxation and all these things. You know, we can be accepting of certain policies that take us in the right direction, but we're radical in focus. And that's the, that really goes back to something, you know, Rothbard said, right? Is that we are, you know, well, well we are, uh, I think it was Rothbard who said it, right? That we have to be radical, radical in our, in our beliefs, uh, but we understand that there's, that we're going to have to have incremental improvements at times. Yeah, I, I know. I don't remember the exact quote, but yeah, I, I do know what you're. It's something to that effect. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it, it, in other words, not that you theoretically would be for gradualism, you know. So you you would be an ad, like in times of slavery, you'd be an abolitionist. Yeah. But if somebody came along and you know gave more liberties to slaves without abolishing it, you would be for the you know you'd welcome that change, but you would still say no. The the ideal is complete abolition of slavery and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, I know we're running down here on the clock. Let me. Are you okay if I end with a, with a throwing you a real fastball? Just for, sure. Let's okay, do it. Let me, I got to do it. And, and also, again, I think uh, you know for those out there who are skeptical, this you know give you a chance to address it head on. I know, and I've encountered this over the years. I feel like uh, the hostility to Christian libertarians has died down over time. I think maybe some of us who are pioneers on this, yeah, you know, we're like the like the women in the workplace in the '60s who you know. <laughs> <laughs> push through. And so now that now you young folks today don't have to endure what we do because it used to be really hostile. Like I had people emailing me saying, yeah, I'm Christian, but I don't mention it on Facebook because I don't want the Randians biting my head off. You know, that kind of, That's whereas right. I don't, yeah. I don't hear that much anymore. I think they're just, you know, we've, we've uh, sort of taken the sting, the sting out of it. But what I do want to say that I could see how somebody who just doesn't, you know, believe that maybe they weren't raised this way or they just, you know, come on guys, this is you know, these books from thousands of years ago, a bunch of fairy tales. Give me a break. Uh, and they could say, how can you guys not see this? Clearly, like the political class, they tell everyone they need them. They warn them of all these dangers that will happen without them. And they use it to bilk them out of their money. And they, you know, take and brainwash their kids. How can you not see that modern churches do the same thing? They threaten you with eternal damnation. They want your money. They want to brainwash your kids. H- how can you guys not see that? The politicians are just like the, you know, the church and you know, especially if we go back in time, we can see that that symbiosis was there and it's just about fooling and tricking and ruling a gullible public. Wake up, you guys. Give me a break. What do you say to something like that? (laughs) Well, for someone who's really fully ensconced in that, it's very hard to convince them out of it because they weren't convinced into it. That's just something that they just sort of believe without really a lot of evidence. Now, Sure, there are some bad there are some bad actors out there, and there are some bad ministers, there are some bad televangelists and whatnot, and there's plenty of stories that you can find about the worst of the worst in that respect. But I'll tell you what, if you're really concerned about that, just come and walk alongside me for a while, man. Come and just see what we're doing in my church today. Come and uh, and just participate along. Just to, just observe, look and see if what you believe is happening really is happening. What if you're wrong? What if uh, what, we, what we're promoting is this lifestyle of peace and of, of 
true community of rebuilding relationships and of finding salvation in a way that perhaps you didn't even think could be possible. What if we're right? Come and experience that just for a little while. Just look at, look alongside. And if you still believe that, then walk away. But maybe you'll find there's something different about it. I would just invite the people who are skeptical to, you know, withhold judgment for just a little while and come walk alongside us. And if you're still unconvinced, we're not going to force you. That's not the point. That's all I can really do. If I can't, I can put all sorts of reasons why one should believe. But if you, if your real objection is just, I don't see how these relationships work. And I think the people are out to get other, uh, these other people and blah, blah, blah. Well, all I can do is offer you the counterexample. Come hang out with me for a while. And uh, that's the way I would, that's the way I'd approach it. And hopefully, you know, that that's happening. I mean, I'll, I'll say that at least as far as LCI is concerned and libertarianchristians.com's history, I kid you not, we get emails at least a few times a year from people who said like, you know, I used to be so against Christians. And then I started actually reading some of what you guys said. Uh, I was a libertarian and I discovered you guys. I heard one of your talks or I saw you on a podcast or blah, blah, blah. And I started reading what you guys wrote. I ended up going to a church. And you know what? I thought this was amazing. And I'm just wanted to let you know I'm a Christian now. I kid you not, I get a couple of those every year. That's great. And that's incredible to me. Uh, and so I would just invite anybody with that type of skepticism just to, I don't know, just be around us. See what's up. Walk alongside us for a while and join us for at least a little bit. See what you think. Well, that's a wonderful uh, note to end on. So, Norman, do you, for people who are interested and they like this conversation, and they want to, you know, learn more about your work or the or your uh, institute, wh- wh- where do they go? Well, you can definitely go to libertarianchristians.com and sign up for our mailing list and go to our uh, our Facebook page at just facebook.com slash libertarianchristians. You can join our Facebook group, which has over 8,000 people in it who are doing constant conversation on these topics. And then, of course, we have a bunch of different products that if you're interested in trying to, you know, kind of learn more, whether you want to just read website uh, material, we've got over a thousand posts of various things. We have a podcast, the Libertarian Christian Podcast, which you can find on iTunes and Stitcher and, you know, Podcast Addict, wherever you, you know, use your your podcast catcher or whatever, you can find us. It's uh, it's great. We are approaching our 100th episode. And and uh, for, for your listeners who are interested, we'll just make a quick note that on January 7th, uh, we're going to be live streaming our 100th episode, and uh, it'll be something you can sign up for. Uh, it costs you nothing. It'll be absolutely free. It'll be via the Crowdcast client. Uh, and so it's uh, just a, a website that you can use, and we can live stream this for you. It's going to be super fun. We're going to talk about some of our history and what we've what we've done, and, uh, and then, of course, where we're going. And there's so much more to come. I mean, 2019 is going to be our biggest year ever. There are things that are happening that are super exciting, whether it's our audiobook that's about to happen uh, of Called to Freedom or the second volume of the Christian Libertarian Review, which is our academic journal. You can go to christianlibertarianreview.com and get the first volume of the journal absolutely free. Dr. Bob Murphy is on our editorial review board, yeah, by the way. Uh, it's, it's pretty terrific. That guy's pretty good. He, I hear he's pretty great, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we're really excited about that. There's so much going on and this is a wonderful year for, we're ending We're ending a wonderful 2018 and we're going to you know, have an even better 2019. And like I said, just walk alongside us for a while. If you're already a Christian and you want to join us, please do help us out. Whether you want to donate or write for us at some point, man, we're going to, we are so excited to have you with us. And it's, uh, it's, it'll be an honor to work with any of you guys who come alongside us and, and want to help support us in some way. So just invite everybody to come and check us out.
Great. And so, of course, all that information will also be available at bobmurphyshow.com slash nine, where you'll see all those links and everything else we've touched on. Norman, it was a pleasure. I'll have you back at some point. And uh, thanks. Thanks so much for your time. Bob, like I said earlier, it's a total honor to be with you. You're one of my favorite people, and I'm so happy to be in your top 10. (laughs) Thanks, Norman. Okay, everyone, we will catch you next time. And again, this was bobmurphyshow.com slash nine. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.